This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Um, we, in the last uh, the lecture, we spoke about the underpinnings of our faith that the Sinistatari was true, and again, the different approaches of um, uh, different things which would lead us to believe that this transition is true and so on, this transmission is true and so on. I'd like to deal now with some of the opposite issues, which is attacks on the veracity of the written Torah. Um, two or three of the attacks given, um, let's divide them up. First of all, um, there was what's called biblical criticism, which was a literary uh, attack on the integrity of Torah and the quote-unquote proof that the Torah's many documents put together, etc., etc., etc. And the um, that's one area. There is archaeological issues. Um, that's the second area. And then specifically, as regards creation and as regards uh, the flood, there is scientific issues. In other words, if science can show that these things are not true or impossible or whatever it might be, then we have a real problem with the integrity of Torah. So I guess in three broad areas was the, um, the literary criticisms, um, the uh, archaeological correlations, and the scientific issues with the beginning of the Torah specifically. Let's talk a bit about the biblical criticism, and this is one of those areas where, like we said before, science really is used as a masquerade for something else. <laughs> Historically, biblical criticism started in the mid-18th century, 1750s. It, it took on two forms. One was called the higher criticism, one was called the lower criticism. The lower criticism is simply a suggestion that we don't have the exact text, that the that there was a Torah written, and we can accept whatever we wish, you know, as far as the Torah is going to be Sinai, or whatever, but the Torah we have has many mistakes and needs to be corrected, sort of Hagos and Gersos. The lower criticism is what we would, um, uh, what we would call um, putting down the right Gersos, the way we would have, like we've shown him, that people go through manuscripts and they come out with the right uh, Gersos. And then the second one, the higher criticism, is um, the uh, understanding the Torah as not being one document, as not being um, given Sinai, but rather piecing together a lot of different uh, areas, a lot of different stories and tales and traditions and folklore, and somebody patched it together and made the book that we have in front of us. That was criticism. And it all was done in university, and it was very scientific, etc., etc. First, I'd, I'd like just to sit back a second and uh, explain what the foundations of the criticism is and understand why it never should have been given the... Uh, it, sh- it should never have been called scientific in any sense of the word, and it should not have ever really posed problems. The... Um, the first thing is, for instance, let's say I would present you with uh, Grimm's fairy tales. 
uh, book of Grimm's uh, fairy tales, you would say to yourself, um, I'm curious to know if Mr. Grimm or Mrs. Grimm um, thought up of all these stories just out of the blue, or were there other stories and, and bits and pieces that they put together from uh, legends and other folklore and stuff like that and came up with the Grimm's fairy tales. My, my working assumption is that the Grimm's fairy tales are fairy tales. And therefore, um, I'm right to say that it's very hard for a person just to, out of thin air, come up with a lot of things. It obviously is a collection of stuff, and I can trace back different stories that are incorporated, different ideas, different fantasies, etc., etc. These are all things that are, um, given the, the opening uh, assumption that that's what it is. Um, if I come along and I have to deal with the Torah and, and I need to uh, deal with I need to deal with a question of whether or not it is true as it is the, the first question really is what's my base assumption to the mind of the quote unquote enlightened um, scientific uh, mid 18th century uh, 19th century researcher, obviously stories are not true. And the Torah is somewhere along the line between Homer and Grimm's fairy tales. Something of that nature. So just like uh, Homer, I would say the same thing. I would say, well, it's a, it's a lot of very nice stories, interesting where you got them from, and so on and so forth. That's the opening attitude. It, it, you know, you start out with, a, with, a, with an assumption, oh, you know, it cannot be that oh, these, are, these are obviously fairy tales, and let us see if they're fairy tales, then it makes sense that there's a parallel. Uh, they came from the stories that were contemporary. They were put in by later editors. They had reasons. So you really start with the basic assumption that either or, if you believe in the Torah then um, as being true, you obviously, um, you, you're working with a very different set of perceptions. Um, if you start off with the just just with a basic understanding that anything not natural in God is obviously just a figment of imagination. You start with a different set. And that's, that's the honest truth as the basis of it. The tools, quote-unquote, of the biblical criticism were as follows. Um, let's say, let's give an example. First thing is, if I were to read, if, if I were to give them a manuscript, I would assume that there are certain literal literary styles that will be consistent. I will be able to research and tell you if, a, if this was written by one person, by the styles, the words used, the terms most often used, and so on. It is something between science and an art. Um, whereas, for instance, handwriting analysis is closer to a science because it's something done not consciously by a person. When you write and you're not making any special effort, to change or write things, um, your hand follows a certain pattern, and a, a very good um, a graphologist should be able to pretty much determine objectively, computers should be able to do it, and so on. And um, writing styles is, first of all, to start off with somewhere between art and science. I mean, you take a person, and, he, and the letter that he writes as a lawyer, the brief that he files, the letter that he writes to his caller, um, the note that he writes to a neighbor that he's very upset at, 
are going to be very different in style and words and so on and so forth. You hope so. You hope so, yes. You definitely have this is, as being printed as a lawyer. He hopes that it's a different style. And back and forth, that's quite, uh, that is also very, very, um, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's not scientific in the sense that it could be objectively calibrated by some sort of computer. Um, secondly, if the Torah itself was meant to be a straightforward prose document, well, this is the history of Jewish people, da, da, da. the Torah is a document written to teach us things. So, for instance, um, the, the first, the first uh, point that they made is that different terms were used for God. Um, there was Elohim, there was Yudke Vavke, there was Kale, and so on. So the understanding, the axiom was different people, different periods of time use different names of God to call God by that name and therefore we will uh, date it as such. But, that, that's, but that's an incredible assumption based on nothing. Um, we do have um, a Masoras, a very clear Masoras that talks about the, the different names, when they use, how they use, and so on and so forth. So, so, so you're talking about something that is, it, it, it's not scientific, it's very axioms are heavily, are to be contested quite heavily. Secondly, it says, well, you take a look, Bracious, the story repeats itself. First chapter deals with, with Bria, second chapter deals with Bria and has slightly different, and has a slightly different um, spin to it. Well, yes, the, the first one is the Clolis of the Bria, the second one is Bria's Adam, in detail, it, it depends. If Torah was meant to be just a straight recording of events by a, a, a video camera, then yes, there, there seems to be some uh, some strange parts to it. But it's nothing like that. And I, I, I like you're starting with an axiom and expectation, and it doesn't make any sense. So um, the entire field of so-called biblical criticism, I have no problem with it as long as you say these are the thoughts and feelings of a group of people. The word science is very iffy. Proven is non-existent. You're starting with an assumption. And, uh, for instance, if somebody, if somebody assumes uh, that you would never use the term almighty, and he finds in your letters the word almighty used, he says, ah, somebody must have inserted it. Well, you started with an assumption. I, I'm not sure that the assumption comes from anywhere. So that was the vast... And it led to so many crazy quilt theories and so many different... Um, it, 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 in other words, at the end of the day, it really, really did not lead to any... There's no conclusion from it. And people have cut the, the Tanakh in a hundred different ways and came up with a hundred different theories. It's meaningless. What now also proves very much against it is we have the records of Tanakh going back to 1,000 years. We now have them to 2,200 years. We have Tanakhs that old, and they're the same as the one that we have. They, they, the, the Masoras, anyone who knows us, if Torah calls a fortune to write and curses why the Torah couldn't have just sanctioned printing, say, say for Torah, instead of paying $40,000, $50,000, it knows that the integrity of the Torah is extraordinary. We check it over dozens of times. We have a Masoras to counter-check it with, and of all the Sefer Torah that we have in the world today, there and all the Masoras of Torah, this is going um, three and a half thousand years after it was written, after it was given, we have 
approximately variations of nine letters non-significant. Um, that's all in every ITA community. Now, I'd like to read to you about, um, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica on the Bible. Uh, I, again, my assumption is that they are as mainstream as, and as, as mainstream as can be. Uh, I don't think that the from by any sense of the word. It is the, um, the, the uh, entry of biblical literature is about 250 pages. I'll only read about 240 or so of it. But um, just to start, um, I just want to read some paragraphs. Um, no longer are there compelling reasons to assume that the history of the canon must have commenced very late in Israel's history as was once accepted. In other words, once upon a time, it was the scientific understood that it happened very late. It no longer, um, uh, it, it no longer is like that. The emergence of Mesopotamia already in the second half of the second millennium BCE of a standardized body of literature arranged in a more or less fixed order with some kind of official text expresses the notion of a canon in a secular sense. In other words, we already have to push it back so far. Um, he says, A because, and he says very, very good reasons. First of all, they were kept in a temple, very holy. This wasn't just like jotted down by people. And the injunction to deposit the two tables of the Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant and the Book of the Torah beside it, um, it, it tend to confirm the existence of the practice in Israel that it was kept there and it was kept very holy with a lot of attention to the details. So we no longer need to come to it. Um, then he has an entry here. I have it at page 9. I guess this, it's my dating of how the pages got printed off. Um, the text of the Hebrew printed Bible consists of consonants, vowel signs, and cantillation marks. The two latter components are the, written by the school of the Masoretes. The earliest printed edition of the Hebrew Bible derived from the last quarter of the 15th century. That's what we have. The oldest Masoretic codices, in other words, this is what's, what we have, like the Kesser, comes from the end of the 9th century, beginning of the 10th century. A comparison of the two shows that no textual, textual development took place during the intervening 600 years. So we kept 600 years um, exactly as it should be. A single standardized recension enjoyed an absolute monopoly and was transmitted by the scribes with amazing fidelity. Not one of the medieval Hebrew manuscripts and none of the thousands of fragments preserved in the Cairo Geniza contains departures of any real significance from the received text. Um, so in the last it's Kufa that we have, um, they haven't found any, any um, uh, you know, we, we, they cannot have any, we don't find any differences in any divergence. Um, also, what about a um, uh, he, he must uh, what about if it, was there an earlier version or not? He says um, in case of some biblical literature there exists the real possibility though it cannot be proven that it must have endured a long period of all transmission before its committal to writing. Um, in the interval it might have undergone a vision. So he says um, there's a possibility, but it cannot be proven. So, so why does it exist? No, no explanation for it. Um, and what he does point out, how do we know that it exists? 
he says, first of all, you have the same psukim repeated in two different places with changes. Yes, um, we have Masoras for each and every one of them. There's a reason for it. Um, and so on. Next thing that he writes that's very interesting here is um, as to when and how a, this is on the page 11 and it's textual criticism scholarly problems as to when and how a single text type gained hegemony and then disabled all others um, in other words he's bothered by the problem why is it we have such a single text with no variations it is clear that the early and widespread public readings of the scripture in the synagogues of Palestine, Alexandria, and Babylon was bound to lead to a heightened sensitivity of the idea of a correct text and to give prestige to the particular text forms like for reading. So he says, well, Kriya Satora obviously created a situation where, um, you know, Bali Kriya did not want to come up with different Satora in different places and therefore they were very, very careful. By the way, um, notice that Nusach Tefillah is different. Nusach Tefillah was never committed to writing, and we have variant Nuschos. Kriya Satora is straight across. So he says, well, I guess from the time that there must have been Kriya Satora, you've got to have um, the same, you, you probably started having the same text. Um, the next type, later known as Masoretic, is already well represented at pre-Christian Qumran, scrolls from Wadi al-Murabat, Nachal Tzelem Masada from the 2nd century CE. That's going back to 2200 years, are practically identical with the received text that by then gained victory of all its rivals. Means that we have a clear um, physical, concrete evidence that 2200 years, um, it, the Nusra stayed the same. Um, now, what about uh, but sometimes you have psukim that are not clear, and by changing a word or something, you get a lot better explanation. In regard to an attempt to recover the original text of a biblical passage, especially an unintelligible, again, assuming that 2200 years of showing the text to be a, the same is not enough, because obviously, and again, that obviously is coming from a perspective, um, we, we, it must have been different. And sometimes you have a pasuk that's really obscure, and you can't understand it. So, in the light of the variance among different versions of manuscripts and known cause of corruption, it should be understood that all reconstruction must necessarily be conjectural and perforce tentative because of the irretrievable loss of the original edition. Um, so, first thing he says is, any attempt to quote-unquote scientifically reconstruct the original is very highly conjectural. But not all textual difficulties need presuppose underlying mutilation. Again, he says, it doesn't mean just because we have a difficulty in the text that something must have happened to it. The Hebrew Bible represents but a small portion of the literature of ancient Israel, and hence a limited segment of language. A textual problem may be a product of present limited knowledge of ancient Hebrew. Um, so, again, we, we don't have, just because something is a hard pasuk to define in pshat, doesn't mean in any way that it is um, corrupted. None of this means that Hebrew manuscript, the ancient version or conjectural foundation, cannot yield a reading superior to that of the Hebrew text. It does mean, however, that those tools are employed with great caution and In other words, so-called scientific methods of deriving even lower criticism of getting to the quote-unquote right text, from a secular point of view, are deeply flawed. 
Now, until the discovery of the Judean Desert Scrolls, the only pre-medieval fragment of the Hebrew Bible known to the scholars was the Nash papyrus from Egypt containing the Decalogue and the Deuteronomy. Now, however, um, fragments of about 180 different manuscripts of biblical books are available. The dates vary between the 3rd century BE, taking us back uh, 2300 years, uh, 2200 years, and the 2nd century CE, and all but 10 stem from the caves of Qumran. Um, and it goes through the different ones, the different what they have. The importance of the Qumran scrolls itself cannot be exaggerated. The great antiquity brings them close to the Old Testament period itself. For the first time, Hebrew variant texts are extant and all known major text types are present. Some are close to the Septuagint, in other words, Septuagint, um, the meaning that it's the, the, the text is similar to Targum Shivim, other to the Samaritan. On the other hand, many of the scrolls are practically identical with the Masoretic texts, <coughs> which thus takes this recension back in history to pre-Christian times. Uh, um, so he says over here that the variants from the Masoretic texts are negligible. Um, they found the same phenomenal character of the fragments of numbers found in Nachal Chaver. So you have, um, you now have the three basic forms of um, things found over there. You have the Shomrim, Shomronim, you have the Targum Shivim, and the majority of them are the, the texts that we have. Now, we happen to know the history of the Shomron text. The Shomron adapted it and adapted it. We happen to know um, the, 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 the Targum Shivim was either deliberately changed or, you know, like the Gemara says, there were changes made deliberately. And also, there was no kedushas of, of it. It wasn't written in shuls, so errors did creep in. In other words, we, it's not three variants. It's one text that's emis, and two that were changed. The, the Samaritans changed the text deliberately. Um, so the the um, the the, the, the um, and he, he says over there, by far the majority are of that. I once found a very interesting statement, which again shows to how um, scientific assumptions can be. Um, it was assumed forever that Yeshaya was written by two people. The main reason was because this, at the end of Yeshaya he talks about events that would happen much later that he could not have known about, uh, 200 years later and so on, and uh, he obviously didn't know about it. Which, again, it starts with a premise that a Navi could not know what's going to happen and so on. But the Yosef Yeshaya that was found in those, in, 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 in those uh, uh, scrolls, we have it, it's on exhibit, you can see it in the Hebrew University, in, in, the, uh, in the museum, and uh, that is a perfect Yeshaya the way we have it. And the, the um, quote-unquote uh, scientific community was amazed at how early the error had crept in and already at such an early time, they already had the mistake of it being one safer, one is obviously two. Um, again, there's an assumption that it's not possible in the future, which is, okay, it's, you either take the assumption, don't take the assumption. Um, and um, you have the, the and, and then you build on it and say, well, it must have been so, uh, it, it must have been so old. Um, then it g he starts speaking about a little bit about uh, the underpinnings of criticism, and um, I would just like to extract one or two words about it, um, and then 
we'll finish with that. This is on page, I'm not sure, it's Old Testament literature, the Torah, composition, authorship. Um, the um, theory once widely held that the book of Joshua was, orig was originally integral to the first five books to form a hexateuch is now generally regarded as dubious. Um, beyond these obvious discrepancies, modern literary analysis and criticism of the text has pointed up significant differences in style, vocabulary, and content apparently indicating a variety of original sources for the first four books, as well as an independent origin for Deuteronomy. Uh, according to this view, the Tetratuch, which is, 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 because they hold those four, is a redaction primarily of three documents. The Yoist, uh, the, you know, the one who used UK Bavke, the Locust, the E, or the Priestly Code, of P, and so on and so forth. Now, again, so, so it's built on these changes and so on. I want to say over something that um, Rabbi Mordechai Breuer wrote, uh, Dr. Mordechai Breuer. Dr. Mordechai Breuer was a tremendous grammarian. He's put out the Tanakh in um, the Tanakh published by Moshe Rav Cook today, where he tried to reconstruct the Girsus. And again, you're talking about vowels and um, truck. You're not talking about letters. Maybe one or two. We have disagreements to be similar to the text. And he said every single thing that the, the Bibliocism pointed out is correct. But he said it's, it's going on the assumption that if a human wrote it, we would assume different authorships. No one exactly has explained how God would author something. I'll give you a marshal, a very simple and crude marshal. Somebody would just say if, if God gave the luchos to Moshe, then what we can do is take those luchos, dust them for fingerprints, remove Moshe's fingerprints off it, and we're left with God's fingerprints. Obviously, right? Anytime you handle something, um, good, you can scientifically look for fingerprints, sweat marks, um, DNA exude, so we've got a great way of categorizing God. You know, just remove, according to the story, only two people, only two beings handled the luchos, God and Moshe. So, so obviously, it's absurd. Um, you know, God has no fingerprints, God has no, has no sweat glands, so it, it's, it's nonsense. How do you apply... Hashem wrote the Torah. Each part of the Torah has a different message. And even the Vim who spoke B'Shem Hashem, there's an understanding that the language is geared to the message and to the person. So what value, assuming that Hashem wrote it, the changes in style and so on, that's what Boris says. I can accept every single point they make, but, the, but, but, but it's all built on the fact that a human being cannot possibly, does not change style so readily. That's great. Um, what about a God? Yes. Um, but isn't there also an underlying assumption that if God, you know, God wrote the Torah and he gave it to us, he wrote the Torah and gave it to us in a way that would have meaning for us. Yes. So if there are, you know, blatant contradictions or... Right. So, 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 it, correct. And those meanings are incorporated in the Torah Shabal Peh. In the vast... Shnei Ksum HaKishin HaZeach Sheva Kosher Shechia B'Nehem. Loma Nemar this... Loma Nismach this to this. In other words, the Torah is not written in chronological order. It's written in a certain um, in, in order of meaning. So, Loma Nismach Zeh Lazeh Lametcha. Loma Kedima Parsha Zu Leparsha Zu. Um, Loma, Helim, you know, this. I, yes, the Torah is meant to be rife with meaning, and every time you find a problem, 
a, a textual problem. It's rather a clue to teach you something else. Um, so the um, you know w- 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 if you know if a person writes you a letter and you don't know the person, you, you're missing a lot of information. Is he writing this cynically or is he writing this uh, actually straightforward? Um, just as an aside, a, c- a cute anecdote along these lines. Um, there was a, a neighbor of mine, uh, and I grew up, a neighbor of mine, when I was growing up, we had a neighbor, a very big tzaddik, his name was Naftali Leibowitz. He was a brother-in-law of Rebbe Leibowitz, and they both married sisters. I don't remember him anymore, maybe vaguely like to a dream. He had a very, very, very big tzaddik. He was Mashkir and Kamnati. She even came to America. His wife was a very big tzaddikus, Rebbe She lived very long, and I remember her, like what like, tzaddikus out of a book. Um, they were stuck in Siberia during the war, and they needed, they were starving to death and frozen cold, and they needed um, desperately to get the word out of their plight to America. You could not write letters in those days that were critical in any sense. And uh, So one day, um, I don't know who was in America, maybe it was a Baron Kotler at the time, maybe it was a Bruce Gazowski, I don't know, who, one, of, one of the Gdom had already been in America gets a letter from Reb Naftali Leibowitz from Siberia and it says that um, life here is fine and it's comfortable and the Soviet government supplies everything we need and no want for that. But he said, as you're well aware, my wife Taibo, her name was Reb Taibo Leibowitz, is very, very pampered lady and she really misses perfumed soaps. Could you possibly send some perfumed soaps? And whoever got the Rebbe said, and immediately put together a package of basic food staples and send them. Because knowing the person, perfumed soap was as far removed from her. And he obviously guessed immediately that they just tried to say desperately, we need help and send help at all costs. Um, but that you can only guess by knowing the author. Uh, we have a Torah, and the Torah is there to clue us into it, the sensitivity to all the nuances. When the Torah repeats a parsha. It, it's repeating it for a reason. When the Torah leaves out information, when you have a word change, when you have a letter left out, the Torah exists in... When we talk about remez, pshat, remez, drush, and sod, remez is the chink that allows you to say, aha, there's something here. If you're looking at a very, very good writer, you'll say the choice of word that he used over here... Um, you know, if, if, uh, he, he, he's obviously inferring something. If somebody, for instance, writes about the God that he had, or, 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 and he calls him my protector instead of the God, there's a change that implies something. And so the Torah is written in a way that is incomplete in its level of physical words and gives us a basis. All the drush that we have finds its niche in the different um, oddities. So that's the way we look at it. And, uh, and Elohim has one meaning, and Havai has another meaning, and so on and so forth. Um, one more thing. This is sort of the final paragraph in, uh, before he begins to... And this is an astounding... This is, again, it's like Peter Botanica, which I, my assumption is it's the mainstream, um, it's weighty... Um, you know, uh, summation of what they have there. This is the final paragraph before it begins just to simply describe in great detail every single book and so on. 
This documentary theory of the composition of the Pentateuch, meaning all of the, what biblical criticism has put together, has been challenged by eminent 20th century scholars who have offered alternative or additional methods of analysis and interpretation. Form criticism, for instance, has stressed particular literary forms and historical settings by which they arose. The sagas, laws, legends, other forms, and, and the particular tribal cultic context gave a meaning. Traditional criticism centers on pre-literary sources. Archaeological criticism has tended to substantiate the reliability of the typical historical details of even the oldest periods and to discount the theory that the Pentateuchal accounts are merely a reflection of a much later period. The new methods of criticism have served to direct attention to the life experience and religion out of which the Pentateuchal writings arose and to take a less static, literal view of the constituent documentary sources. Um, yet most scholars look up the documentary theory in its basic lines as the most adequate and comprehensive ordering of the variegated constitutional materials. Um, so, basically what he's saying is, archaeology has confirmed almost every part of it. Um, the, 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 the scientific tools of, of, of the criticism and so on of, of it has sort of fallen to this use, yet most people tend to take that as being the emiss and they work with that theory. So, let's slowly sum up. The, 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 the Bible criticism, a so-called field of it, is built on an understanding that is a, um, a, an understanding that is really, really, um, it, 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 it's built on assumptions that we don't, no one has a reason to take it um, as an axiom unless he's inherently secular. For instance, um, looking at the fairy tales of Derry Kynes, I say to myself, this stuff is nonsense, and I base on that. But we're talking about you can't prove the Torah is nonsense by starting with the axiom that it's nonsense. And, and therefore all that methodology, and especially since he says archaeology has, has basically proven every single part of it, what we know of the history fits the, the, the Torah and so on by and large, um, and there are many different ways of understanding it, even secularly, at what the Torah is doing. For instance, let's <coughs> take the two narratives of creation of man. I mean, it's, it's like you'd be looking at, at with a wide lens and then with a narrow lens. This is the world, and now let's focus on man. Um, you know, even, even with a secular perspective, one, the fact that two manuscripts is not at all the most plausible explanation of it. So that is, that is, relates as the proof of, of um, the so-called proof, uh, you know, so-called biblical criticism, the scholarship, and so on and so forth. There are, there are other areas that we want to look at, and that is um, archaeology. Um, there is a, um, one, of, one of the focuses now, as in the piece we've read now from the Britannica, is to try to understand as Judaism having arisen from contemporary um, stories. In other words, uh, to look at it as part of a family of things. Uh, the two, the, the, there's the Gilgamesh epic, which is a story, a Babylonian story about the world, which in some ways seems to be similar to the account of the flood and some other things. And then there's the Hammurabi code which in some ways seems to be um, to incorporate laws that are similar to Moshe Rabbeinu and uh, 
seem to have preceded Moshe Rabbeinu. Those are two things that, again, test the validity of the Torah in a more objective way, and therefore um, we need to look at it also. Um, these are things, again, which, because we're, di- because we're talking about people that will come in contact with outside people, different people have different interests and read different things, it's important to have some sort of idea and some sort of a way of responding to it. Um, I think we'll hold it here. Yes? Rabbi, is Rabbi aware of any, uh, you know, ancient texts from other cultures that also use similar methodologies for darshaning stuff, like um, you know, Prat and... Uh, I, I am not aware. Sigurdus. I'm not aware because this, this, the things that we have... Um, he does, there is a piece that you can look at it on hermeneutical exegesis, and it, it's, it, it starts with the New Testament onwards. In other words, um, in New Testament, the, the Church Fathers did try to sort of expound from it. And I don't think, again, I, I'm nowhere an expert on it. I've just, what I've come across in more general reading, uh, um, it, it, it's a type of, we, we don't have that many early texts. Um, the stuff that we find earlier is hieroglyphics, it's historical stories, um, or laws, just like, like you know, the Hammurabi Codes. I, I'm not aware that there are any real um, texts that have that nature of where, where, you, where, where you darshan it and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think one of the things that outsiders that come to Torah are, are usually astounded by that because it's such an unusual way of looking at things. Um, I may be wrong, but 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 uh, as to the best of my knowledge, that's uh, I would appreciate if someone would correct me on it. Sort of a meta question here. Yeah. If somebody approaches, you know, say somebody's out working and somebody approaches them and starts to talk to them about these sorts of questions, is it worthwhile to get into an argument about this or just sort of say, well, you know, that's what some people say, but we look at things differently? Or is it worthwhile? In other words, is there a danger of really hearing information that can be shaking, even even if you know, further study would be able to overcome that. Is it worth getting into those kinds of conversations? Um, in the big picture is no. Um, but the question is, can you really say no? And in, in other words, the, the Ramam does say that a person is not supposed to enter conjecture about the validity of Torah because a person does not have all the tools, not emis, and he might through faulty reasoning, come out with the wrong answer and be stuck as an epicurus. That is the way the Raman writes it, and, it's a, and, and that's a halacha. Um, but the question is sometimes you cannot survive. Um, usually, most of the time, you're best off questioning the other person than trying to answer. The person comes along and says, well, haven't science proven this? Ask him, um, how exactly? Um, how does one prove it's not written by one author? Does it apply to God or not? Um, most people, even uh, people who, unless people are really experts in their particular area, they have general ideas of things, but uh, they don't have the specific tools. If you'd ask most people, how do you know that the Earth goes around the sun, not vice versa? The vast majority of people who know it to be true don't have no idea how you could possibly do it. The answer where we we see it in a satellite is absolutely wrong. There are many other very good proofs for it, but that's certainly not one of them. Or um, the, the, um, the so generally speaking, you're best off testing the other person's premises instead of you, and um, 
you know, for instance, somebody says, well, haven't, hasn't, you know, scientific investigation proven the authors, you know, the many human authors and so on and so forth of the Torah, that's, well, how is that proven scientifically? And for instance, well, differences in style, you say, well, how would you assume, if, if I mean, how do you limit God to a certain style? It, that would almost be making him corporal. If God has to have like a pre-Renaissance style, uh, I, I mean, that's kind of limiting God. Um, so, so if we believe in God and God is expressing himself in, in a way, could he not express himself in many different ways for a different message? Uh, understand that the Mozartvel of Araya is a very powerful psak, and don't assume that you're the one who has to prove Araya. And it's the other person. I have a document. It's been held for 2,200 years impeccably with Mr. Nefesh. And um, someone comes along and says he has proof that it's not. I'd very much like to hear it. Uh, we will look in next time. We want to look at archaeology, um, which also, pe- people, the word proof and science uh, give spread its wings so liberally over many things that are very far from it. And then people get stuck with it. They, they assume that it's fact. And uh, so yes, this person spent 45 years in University of uh, Heidelberg studying this absolutely 100% that it's, that it's brought together by different authors. And he already has a date and he's found a tentative name for a person. But, 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 but that's built on a lot of assumptions, you know, and, and, and those assumptions are not scientific in any sense of the word. And, and, and staring in his face is now 2,300 years worth of documents that kept the Torah letter perfect. And by their own admission, everything else is highly conjectured and um, very, very based on very, uh, nothing. There's nothing that we can really build it on. Okay.